words of Psalm 118, 22-24. The same stone that the builders rejected is now the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. On this day the Lord has acted. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I love the liturgy. I love the lectionary. The reason I love the lectionary is it forces me to deal with passages of scripture that I would never, ever choose to preach from. Like the gospel reading today. <clears throat> so, when I saw the gospel reading, fortunately for me and you, I think, I hope, I read it early in the week. And so I reached out to a, a colleague, a, a highly um, gifted colleague, priest and pastor, to get his take on it. And so he shared some things with me that was very helpful. Um, so I'm very thankful to uh, have lots of resources. I need them. And there's so many things I'm discovering more and more every day. With all of the issues and pain and damage being done by the prevalence of technology today, it's also great blessings available. And I'm, I'm learning and retraining my brain and my head my heart to you to use the technology to its greatest and possible advantage for the kingdom of God um, so the Old Testament readings Jeremiah starts out saying oh I selected as a uh, if you want a title for this talk it's fire and hammer fire and hammer Jeremiah 23 verses uh, 23 and 24 say Am I a God at hand declares the Lord and not a God far away Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him declares the Lord Do I not feel heaven and earth declares the Lord As usual, I turned to the message to see if I could understand what that says. And, uh, and I, as usual, Eugene Peterson's translation is very helpful. It says, Am I not a God near at hand, God's decree, and not a God far off? Can anyone hide out in a corner where I can't see him? God's decree. Am I not present everywhere? whether seen or unseen God's decree so the point here is God is a present God he's not some distant God he's not uh, as Beth Midler sings I don't remember the exact words but something about far away in a distance looking down looking on <clears throat> There's nowhere we can go where God is not, David the psalmist says. It goes on to give a very sober warning to false prophets. And toward 
the end of ordinary time as Advent approaches, more and more of the Old Testament readings will be similar kind of warnings to false prophets. And it always kind of scares me a little bit because I know I'll be held accountable for the things I say, especially the things that I say uh, from a pulpit. So that's a, a sobering thought. But <clears throat> he says, Let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, with wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Jeremiah chapter 23 how long will there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart as I've mentioned before several times I think the um, One of the scariest things for me is how do I know if I'm self-deluded? How do I know if, if I've deceived myself, if my heart has been deceived by the wisdom of man or by my own flesh and its desires to be able to see things the way I want to see them? And the only way that I know is by uh, continually praying and seeking for the Spirit of God to bring light and truth into my life and to use brothers and sisters that I'm in relationship with to be a sounding board and to listen to their input into my life and, and to read the witness of the believers who have gone before us for the past 2,000 years and to see if what I'm hearing and what I'm thinking and what I'm believing lines up with the consensus of what has been believed from the beginning at all places. And of course that is a very subjective thing in itself. So there, and I guess the bottom line is there's no easy formula. It's a process. It's, it takes faith. It takes uh, honesty and transparency and a willingness to admit when you're wrong. Uh, it takes listening with a preconceived exception that I might be wrong. And maybe the point of view that I find so hard to wrap my head around uh, may actually be closer to light and truth than my previously held conceptions and thoughts. So a few weeks ago I did a sermon called uh, Things Temporary and Things Forever and I talked about this process a little bit more but uh, it's always there in the back of my mind is I don't want to be guilty of uh, preaching like the the deceit in my own heart. I want to. I want to speak the word of the Lord in 
uh, in truth and hopefully in power. It's like Jeremiah said in chapter 20, if, if I say I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9. So God's word is, is a fire and a hammer. And again, I've in meditating on it, praying about it, and asking for insight from fellow believers, priests, I've, I believe at least a a very good option, a very real possibility of what to do with this word is to understand the fire of God as being representative not of a destructive fire, although it should burn up impurities in our life, but think of it as a, as a furious, flaming kind of love. The fire of God, the kind of a furious, flaming kind of love that melts hard hearts. Somewhere over the course of this preparation, I came across the phrase, I heard somebody mention the hound of heaven. And it, this morning it got me thinking about, I knew somewhere in the cobwebs of my mind, I heard that phrase a long, long time ago. And it may have been Winky Prattney, or it may have, I know Keith Green published a track about it. But I think I had already heard it before I saw Keith Green's track. And it's the, it's the name of a poem that was written in the 1870s, I believe. <clears throat> so it's not that old. I don't know if the term itself predates that. Uh, but there was a writer in England who had, uh, well, I won't go, I don't, I didn't make notes. I'm not, I'm trying to give you details that I probably could just screw up but just look it up The Hound of Heaven it's a very interesting uh, story about this poem that this guy wrote it's 184 lines if I remember correctly and of course it's written in like almost Shakespearean English so I need somebody to translate it for me well guess what we're in luck it's been it's been updated in modern language and uh, I actually considered it's about 12 minutes long just playing it and listening to it but I decided not to do that today but I, I highly encourage you at some point this week to find this it's on YouTube it's a modern adaptation of the Hound of Heaven it's wonderful it's beautiful it's full of grace which is what the poem is about the the furious fire of God that continues to pursue hard hearts until the hearts finally melt. And the hammer, the God's word like a hammer, is like a hammer constantly hammering away to break off, to break away those hardened layers, to break down those doors in our heart that we try to keep tightly closed. So let's remember that God's word is a fire and a hammer, but it's a fire that melts hard hearts. It's a hammer that hammers away those hardened layers in our heart. That God is not a distant God. He is a God that is present, that is here. <clears throat> but in the gospel, Jesus does say that his word 
causes division. And so we may need to expect that. We'll make room for division that's caused by the pursuit of God's holiness and righteousness and truth. The psalm today in the ESV Bible has a subtitle called Rescue the Weak and Needy. And uh, what a better psalm to go along with this Old Testament and Gospel reading to remind us of who God is and what his heart is like. He is not the kind of God that's looking over the rail of heaven just waiting for an excuse to, to blast you into hell. He is the kind of God that is always has his eyes on the horizon looking for the return of the prodigal. He's the kind of God that loves to see the weak and the needy rescued. So verse 3 and 4 says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And that's our responsibility as the church, as believers, is to give justice to the weak and the fatherless to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, to rescue those that are the most desperately in need, that are clinging on to life with all they've got and barely holding on. The New Testament reading is from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Two thousand years worth of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. It goes on, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. That's a reminder that as we press into God, there's going to be division. There's going to be rejection. Just as they rejected Christ, they, we will also be rejected. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. <clears throat> Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. So I'm constantly uh, discovering new authors and teachers and priests and professors. Uh, there's just not enough time in, in one lifetime to be able to absorb it all. So I, I pray and ask God to help me to be discerning in what I choose to actually try to to read or to study. But uh, I'm going to investigate this this new author even more in the, in the weeks ahead. His name is Robert Capon. It looks like Capone, like Al Capone, but it's Capon. 
uh, he just passed away a few years back, I think 2013. He was an Episcopal priest, lived in New York most of his life. Um, but his books are dripping with grace. And uh, from what little bit I've read about him this week, uh, his name came up during this discussion about understanding the fire and hammer and division that's in the gospel reading. So my friend told me, he wasn't speaking directly to me, I was listening to an interview that he was recorded, but uh, he said, I'm headed, well first of all he said, knowing God and understanding our baptism, we welcome God's fire and judgment, final, final sanctification being made whole, complete and perfect. And he just said that in passing, but oh, fortunately I could back it up and rewind it and listen to it several times. So I wrote that down, knowing God and understanding our baptism. I'm sure there's probably a whole sermon series just in that phrase. And I'm not going to pretend to either know God or understand my baptism. But I know what he's saying. It's, it's understanding God's heart toward us, God's, God's furious, flaming love toward us. He went on to say, I'm headed into the fire of God. I'm going to a place where he has his way. I'm going to a place where he has his way with me. There are people in our lives, he brings all these empty relationships that aren't on that path. Does that mean God leaves them or that we turn our hearts against them? Of course not. The salvation that God intends encompasses every person. Our decision to walk toward the fire of God is going to bring about division and we have to be prepared for that. Thank you, Ken. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. So let us remember that God's word is a fire. It's like a furious, flaming kind of love that melts hard hearts. His word is like a hammer, constantly hammering away to break away those hardened layers and to break down those steel doors in our heart that we've locked shut. Be open. Be expectant. God's light and truth can show up in the most unexpected places and the most unexpected ways. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I believe it's Jeremiah, one of the old prof major prophets, that says that God's priest will be satiated. I believe as we 
allow the Holy Spirit to do its work in our life as we allow it to transform us and to wash us in the washing of the word that we will find greater joy we'll find greater satisfaction we'll find greater peace and contentment Jesus also said blessed are the pure in heart and I'm afraid in times past we've misapplied the word pure. I'm afraid we've made pure like an identity that you either have it or you don't. You're either pure or you're not. That you have to, we, we tried, there was this huge effort at one point not long ago to press upon their young people that they needed to stay pure, keep themselves pure. And of course we want to make good decisions. We want to keep our we want to teach our children to make good decisions and to choose godliness. But it's not an identity. It's not an either or. Purity is a destination. It's a process. It's something that we strive toward but we might never quite attain. I've recently begun participating in an online Bible study, a small group Bible study. Again, technology is awesome. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, this point was made by the author of the Bible study. He said, "Your value, you, I'm sorry, your value does not increase or decrease based upon what others might say or think about you." Your value comes from God alone. And he challenged us to uh, set a reminder on our computer or phone or tablet or whatever so we would continually be reminded about that for 30 days. So, so every day at 8.40 a.m. this thing pops up on my phone and says your value does not increase or decrease based upon what others might say or think about you. Your value comes from God alone and by value it means your worth. Your, your desirability to God. His, his furious love for you. It's not, it's not phased by my behavior. He's not shocked when I disappoint him. I heard someone say recently they had a dream and they were they were in torment because of this besetting sin, this, this behavior they could not conquer, they could not get the victory over it. In the dream, he saw Jesus, and Jesus come toward him, and he started apologizing and repenting to Jesus, and Jesus just looked at him and said, yes, you did sin, of course. That's all he said, of course. He wasn't shocked, he wasn't judging. 
He came that sinners might be saved. It's a process. It's not an identity. God is a God that is present here, not a distant God. Amen. Let's stand together and proclaim our common faith on page 3.